If you're looking for a happy place, you found it. This is Live Happy Now. I'm J.R. Houston, the host of Live Happy Now, the podcast dedicated to bringing you to your true happiness through powerful positive psychology, relatable stories, and, of course, a little bit of fun on the way as well. We're also excited to have our partners with us. Live Happy Magazine, the latest issue on newsstands everywhere, your local Barnes & Noble, your local Hudson News, your local grocery store, wherever it might be. We hope that you pick up a copy. We also want to send you to our partner's website, Life Reimagine, and their website, lifereimagine.org slash happy. They've got all kinds of resources for you to check out that will help you reach that true happiness. And you know, they say, as you awaken to the power of happiness, so do your dreams. So what's next? Find out at lifereimagine.org slash happy. We are very excited about this program. We always are, but we're excited to have Sean Acor on the program. He uh, writes for the magazine. He does all kinds of great work designing courses along with Oprah. He's written the book Before Happiness, The Happiness Advantage, bestsellers on the New York Times list. He's won over a dozen distinguished teaching awards at Harvard, where he delivered lectures on positive psychology in the most popular class at Harvard. And he's become one of the world's leading experts on the connection between happiness and success. And uh, Deborah Heiss, our uh, COO, co-founder and editorial director, uh, you and I are going to talk with him about how happiness fuels success and how you can capitalize on the happiness advantage as well as uh, mentioned that two-part uh, O-Course experience on Oprah.com. Sean, so happy to have you on Live Happy Now today. Um, it's great hearing from you again. I'm thrilled to be on. Sean and his wife, Michelle, have been columnists for Live Happy Magazine since we started two years ago. Everything that they're about is the same thing that Live Happy is about, which is about making the world a happier place. So it's really a pleasure to have Sean on the show today. I just kind of want to jump into a, a, a regular question that um, we get asked all the time at Live Happy. And this really is, how do you define happiness? When we're talking about happiness, Sean, how do you define that? Oh, it's a great question. And it's the perfect place to start the discussion um, because I actually fell into positive psychology. Um, I fell backwards into it. I was actually at Harvard Divinity School studying Christian and Buddhist ethics. And I was looking at how our, our beliefs change our actions in the world. And while I was studying that, people in the psychology department said, hey, we want to start testing things like, changes to people's happiness or their compassion levels or their optimism, all these things that we've been hearing about for thousands of years, we'd like to quantify some of those changes. So I started working with them, but what I realized very quickly was that the modern world's definition of happiness was causing us to fall into a lot of problems, right? So you you know drink a certain soda or eat the right meal and suddenly you feel happy for a little bit. Um, but the problem is that pleasure is short-lived and it actually doesn't have any really long-term benefits for us. Um, what we wanted to do is return to back what I was studying at the Divinity School. The ancient Greeks defined happiness, and I love this definition. They, they define happiness as the joy you feel moving towards your potential. The reason I want to highlight that is joy is something you can experience even when life is not pleasurable, right? Even on a long run when your legs are burning, you can feel joy. You can feel it working long hours, starting a, a business, being an entrepreneur yourself. You're putting in long hours, but you find it to be meaningful. Um, you can feel it even in the midst of childbirth where there's high joy, but not necessarily high pleasure in each of those moments. And what we've been finding is that so many people are afraid of happiness within our society because they think, you know, maybe I won't try as hard if I'm already happy. Maybe I wouldn't have been as successful if I was, if I wasn't happy. And that's what pleasure does. But joy does the exact opposite. Joy actually fuels our desire to connect with other people. It makes us want to deepen our relationships. It makes us want to figure out how we can actually achieve our potential. So it turns out if you define happiness as the joy you feel moving towards your potential, not only can we study it and quantify it, it turns out we could actually sustain it. 
Now, you mentioned uh, the, the Christian Buddhist ethics that you've studied. You mentioned uh, the, the Greek uh, definition of it. But you've been traveling all over the world and sort of absorbing uh, sort of what happiness means in all these different areas. What have your travels taught you about happiness? I, I have been so privileged to have the opportunity to travel to 51 countries over the past eight years. And I feel like I've learned more in those past eight years than I did a 12 years studying happiness in the laboratory. Because happiness looks very different in a lab where you can control all the variables. It looks very different in the messiness of life. So I actually started taking this out to companies and to entrepreneurs and schools in the midst of the banking crisis, right when we didn't know if the global economy was going to collapse. We didn't know if, uh, you know, if the economy was ever going to recover. We didn't know if people were going to have jobs. And what we found was, as I traveled to all these different places, what I began to learn was the triggers of happiness are universal, the things that cause happiness. So those are social support. That's optimism. That's how we perceive stress. That's finding meaning in your work. Those were universal, but our access to those were not. So I got the opportunity to travel to some places that, based upon my prejudices, I thought were going to have lower levels of happiness. I went to places like Venezuela and Zimbabwe, where you have complete political instability. I mean, we, we talk about in the United States about not, what's, not knowing what's going on with Congress or who's going to get elected president. But, I mean, the type of political instability they deal with there is crazy. I mean, in Zimbabwe, their currency collapsed. They were moving around their currency while I was there in wheelbarrows. That's how mm. worthless the money had actually become. And they had taken away their lands from farmers. So I, I worked with some farmers there. I worked in Venezuela with people that were under threats of political kidnappings. And I found some of the most optimistic, positive, and happy people I'd found in all of my travels. And the reason for that is that they had deep social connections. So while there was political and economic instability, there was uncertainty in their life, as long as they had that deep well of breadth, depth, and meaning in those social relationships, turns out that they were able to weather whatever storm that they were going through. And I went back, I was living in Boston for 12 years, and I came back from my trip to Venezuela, and I then moved from snowy Boston down to live on the same street as my sister down in San Antonio, Texas. And then when her husband got moved to the military, we moved three families out to Virginia, and we just moved five families back to Dallas this year, trying to really keep that social connection because what we're finding is that some of the least happy places in the world sometimes are the wealthiest. Sometimes in the United States and in Europe, where I work with very wealthy individuals, wealthy bankers, wealthy celebrities, professional athletes, if they have fragmented themselves from their community, if they're traveling too much, if they're working too long hours, where they lose that connection, they can't sustain happiness. So social connection so what you're saying, basically, social connection is one of the, the main keys to happiness for, for the average person. It is. And actually, in my research, it's the greatest predictor of long-term happiness. Um, when I was at Harvard, we found a 0.7 correlation between happiness and social connection, which doesn't sound very sexy if you don't know about correlations. But that's significantly higher than the correlation between smoking and cancer. So if you have social connection, your chances of being happy are extraordinarily high. And one of my favorite statistics, this isn't my research, I wish I had done this. Uh, this is some research that was just done recently where they found that social connection is as predictive of how long you will end up living as obesity, high blood pressure, or smoking. So it turns out not only is it predictive of happiness, it is as having social connection and creating it doing positive habits like 
one of the things I had people do out of Facebook is just write a two-minute positive email each day to a new person. And at the end of the 21 days, your social connection score is off the chart. Hmm. But the reason why that's so valuable is it turns out that that extends your life as much as actually stopping smoking. But the incredible part is you get somebody to do a positive habit, then it turns out their likelihood of stopping the negative things, right? Smoking or eating too much food. It turns out that their likelihood of solving those problems rises dramatically as well. Wow. Um, I need to start sending some thank you notes right now. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's why I love. That's why I love about Live Happy is because every time I get one of the the issues, I feel like there are multiple articles that are talking specifically about these practical takeaways. It, it sounds so simple, right? It's like write a thank you letter or do some gratitude or write in a gratitude journal or exercise. But the research is stunning that those small little micro movements in your life have macro changes to your levels of happiness. And we can actually trump not only your genes, but eight decades of experience by getting somebody to do some of those things you find in the magazine. Well, I want to change a direction just a little bit, because you mentioned it earlier in the conversation. Um, you, you graduated from Harvard's Divinity School in Christian and Buddhist Ethics. And, you know, one of the questions um, that I find really, uh, you know, the answer uh, really compelling, and so I want, I want our audience to hear this, is what role does faith play in someone's happiness? It's incredibly powerful. It's actually one of the most powerful things we've seen. Um, for a lot of different reasons. So uh, two of the people who do this research, they do not have religious beliefs themselves. I do, um, so I, uh, I'm i biased um, in my answer to this. Um, and they're biased too, but in a different direction. But they say that uh, in their research, they actually found that uh, having a belief system highly correlates with levels of happiness, um, extraordinarily high. Now their explanations, not having religious beliefs themselves, is that you have deep social connection, right? You have congregations or temples that you meet up with or mosques that you go to. You've got things that you practice on a daily basis, like meditation or yoga or doing gratitudes during these prayers. You've got this meaningful narrative that runs throughout your life. So it turns out all the greatest things from positive psychology that we found to be so successful are exactly the things we've heard in these religious traditions for thousands of years. And what we keep finding in this research that I've been doing in positive psychology, I continually keep finding research that validates everything that I've been learning back at the Divinity School. Now, one of the things I would add into the discussion, though, is that the way that you perceive your religion actually has an impact upon you as well. So if you see your faith or your religion or your belief system as one in which you're motivated by fear or you're motivated by guilt or that your behavior doesn't matter because everything's done externally for you by an outside divine source, turns out that that means that what happens is your optimism levels go down, the belief that your behavior matter goes down, but also you're motivated actually by fear, which in the long run burns up some of that productive energy and you're less likely to do altruistic acts. Hmm. If on the other hand, you're motivated by a belief that you feel extraordinarily loved or you're motivated by joy instead of fear, you're motivated by a sense of purpose and meaning instead of a, 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 a sense of, of punishment, it turns out those people it turns out their energy levels keep renewing. They have this uh, renewable source of energy. It turns out their productive energy rises. Their likelihood of giving money rises. Their likelihood of sharing that message rises. Their likelihood of happiness rises as well. So even our perception of religion, we have to take the right approach to those belief systems to be able to get the most out of it. It's got to be a love-based system, not a fear-based one. 
that that makes an awful lot of sense because if you feel like uh, the the deity or or whomever that you feel is in control loves you, uh, then then you're going to feel uh, a lot better about it. Uh, I'm not a I'm not a psychologist. I'm pulling back the curtain here. I'm not a psychologist. I'm relatively new to the movement, but even I face a little bit of resistance when people find out the kind of work that we're doing here at Live Happy. And I'm sure as a positive psychologist, you do too. And people are saying, well, you can't just be you know going around being happy all the time and not thinking there's anything negative that ever happens. Do you think the general consciousness, though, is shifting toward that, 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 that yes, we understand there's negativity, but it's all about how you deal with it? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. I think that those positions you're describing will, will go the way of the dinosaurs. I think that when you've got a system that doesn't adapt to truth, it, it actually disappears, um, which is fantastic because what we're finding continually as we p- apply very rigorous science is that these things we've been hearing about having a positive mental attitude actually has a significant advantage in your life, not only in terms of your business and educational outcomes, but our health outcomes and our connectedness to other people as well. I think the key there is not only changing the way that we define happiness, right? It doesn't mean you have a smile on your face all the time or that you're on cloud nine. The top 10% of happiest people in the world, they're not happy actually all the time. People are that, that are happy all the time, I don't get to research them because that's actually a disorder. <laughs> it's a, uh, that's, it's, uh, they've become divorced from reality, and that's actually a very dangerous system to be in. What we want people to be is not irrational optimists. What we want them to become is rational optimists. And rational optimism doesn't start with rose-colored glasses of the world. Rational optimism starts with a realistic assessment of the present, but you maintain the belief that your behavior matters if linked to other people. And the reason why that's so important is that some people, you know, some of the pushback I sometimes get is people say, oh, it's so important to have pessimists at a company or in a family because they see the problems. That's extraordinarily inaccurate because it turns out both optimists and pessimists can both realistically see the problems. Both of them see the problems. What makes you an optimist or a pessimist is after the problem seen. If a person perceives a problem and assumes that it's permanent or it's pervasive, it affects the entirety of their reality, that person is a pessimist. If, however, that person sees a problem, they see a problem at work, they see something that's not going on right in their life, if they see something that's not going on right in society, like a discrimination or inequality, that person perceives it as local it's only one part of the reality that there could be other good things going on in the reality, and it's temporary that this too will pass if they apply their behavior to it. The pessimist sees that problem and thinks that it can't be fixed. That's the worst possible situation, which is to see problems and believe that they can't actually be fixed within that society. What you really need are these rational optimists who see the problems but can realistically assess ways that they can solve it. And it turns out all of the research we've been doing in positive psychology shows that if you start with that positive mindset, turns out your creativity at solving problems triples, your intelligence rises, your productive energy rises by 31%. So what happens is solving those problems rises dramatically as having a positive brain turns on the human brain to its highest possible, highest possible level. I really gravitated towards something you said there, um, which is that having a positive outlook really makes your brain perform better is essentially um, on all, on all, in all avenues. I mean, this is the incredible part. I I wrote, uh, as you know, Deborah, a book called uh, The Happiness Advantage, which was focused on this incredible discovery, which, you know, in some ways it seems so common sense, but we common sense is not common action at all, right? That it turns out that when the human brain is positive, 
it turns out it works extraordinarily differently than it does at negative neutral at stress. When your brain is positive, you have 31% higher levels of productivity. Your sales rise by 37%. Turns out you're 40% more likely to receive a promotion over the next two-year period of time. It turns out with the same level of stress, you have 23% less negative stress effects than somebody who's in a negative state of mind. You're 39% more likely to live to age 94. I mean, we can go on and on. There have been now over nearly two decades of research proving how powerful the, a positive brain actually is. The problem is, if you think about it, we use the wrong formula. We keep thinking, you know, if I study really hard for the SAT and if I get a good grade, think how happy I'll be. When it turns out the research is showing just the opposite, that it, even if you get a good grade on the SAT, you're not happy for long, but flip it around, be positive throughout the entire studying process, and it turns out your SAT scores rise dramatically, your creativity scores rise, your intelligence and memory improve, uh, improvement uh, rises as well. And in addition to that, all these people are like, you know, if I can just start my company, if I get to a million dollar valuation or $500 million valuation, then I'll feel happier. And it turns out they've missed They've missed all the productivity that their brain could have if they had actually been positive through the process, where it turns out every single business outcome we know how to test for when the human brain is positive. And what's so exciting is, and this goes exactly to what Live Happy has been experiencing, is we're seeing a societal shift. That I thought some of the places that would have the hardest time, you know, accepting some of this research, you know, we've we've gone to places where traditionally they don't talk about happiness, right? We've gone into mm -hmm you know, old school banking places. We've gone into the Pentagon. We went into, you know, uh, we've worked with the, uh, the White House and with the NFL, places that, you know, they're supposed to be tough, right? You're supposed to not talk about emotion. You're just supposed to get your job done and be successful. And they're the ones actually leading this movement because they now perceive how powerful it is when you get a soldier to become positive. Colin Powell said it best, he said optimism is a force multiplier. And that's exactly what we're seeing, is that if you encourage somebody to have a positive mindset before they even get into a combat situation, their likelihood of returning from that traumatic experience, like combat, their likelihood of returning with post-traumatic growth rises dramatically, and their likelihood of returning with post-traumatic stress drops uh, uh, markedly as well. Turns out the combat effectiveness rises. Turns out if you, uh, I've been working with the Department of Education. If you can get people positive and the teachers positive, entire standardized test scores improve at uh, school districts. So what we're finding is uh, we're seeing a, um, a play tectonic shift that's occurring within our world where it's slow movements, but it's changing the entire face of what we think about what work and education looks like. It kind of reminds me of this this superhero show I'm watching where they said, well, why, why does this character always win? Well, because he expects to. Is that, is that kind of what you're getting at? If you expect to do well and you expect things to go the right way, you'll, you'll perform better? It, yes, you perform better and it increases the likelihood of a positive outcome. Uh, one caveat that I want to make that I think is important to make with this research is that it doesn't mean that bad things won't happen to good people. Bad things happen mm -hmm. to good people all the time. Bad things happen to positive people all the time. But being positive helps us to actually get through that in a much stronger and better way. And even though it doesn't guarantee that you're going to, you know, get into uh, the school that you want to go to, or it doesn't guarantee that you're going to be able to go public with your company someday, it increases the likelihood of it dramatically by turning on the brain to its highest possible level. And there's a really cool study that shows that type of effect. So there was a study done by Richard Weissman where he had people um, first say whether or not they, uh, and this goes right back to the superheroes idea you're talking about, 
Um, he asked them, do you think you're a lucky person? Do good things happen to you? Are you a positive person? Do you expect good things to happen to you? And it turns out those people, uh, oh, it, so then they respond to that question. And then, uh, or do you think you're a negative person? Or are you an unlucky person? Or do you, bad things happen to you and you just have to deal with it? Then you have, you give everyone a newspaper and you have them count the number of photographs in the newspaper. And you tell them if you get the right number, you get $5. Well, everyone starts going to the newspaper very quickly. Turns out in big letters, it says, stop the experiment. If you stop now, we'll give you $50. <laughs> turns out, isn't that great? It's a very yeah, expensive experiment to run. But it turns out that the optimists, the lucky people, the, the people that life just good things seem to happen to them, turns out they stop and they get $50 from the experiment. But the people who responded that they were negative or that they didn't expect good things to happen or they were defensive pessimists, they just assume bad things are going to happen so they'll be pleasantly surprised in the future. They just keep counting the number of photographs. And afterwards, you ask them, did you see that big offer? And they said, no, I didn't even see it. But it turns out they did. If you do eye tracking, you can watch their eyes scan right over that, that opportunity and delete it. See, what happens is when you're a defensive pessimist, when you have a negative view of the world, your brain feels like it's under threat. So it actually focuses your resources down towards the threats. And it stops scanning the world for opportunities. When your brain is in a positive state, you not only feel like you can accomplish this task, you have resources not able to look for shortcuts or other opportunities for low-hanging fruit, which is why one of the greatest predictors of entrepreneurial success is actually optimism, because it allows your brain to perceive possibility so that you can pound. Well, I know that uh, you probably encounter the same types of questions I, or the same type of responses to this research that I occasionally get, which is, well, that's all well and good for you because you're a happy person anyway. So it's great that it's great that optimism works to an advantage if you're an optimist. I mean, obviously, I believe or we wouldn't be doing Live Happy that it's possible for people to learn these traits. But um, just share with people, have you always been a happy person? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so let me answer it a roundabout way. So I, uh, uh, last February, I got uh, my, my wife and I had our son, Leo. It's our first and only child. And I've been traveling so much. I'm talking about this research that my wife, Michelle said, you can't travel anywhere in February, you know, unless Oprah calls. And it turns out, <laughs> that's Oprah. the only time anybody wants it. If Oprah calls, she's get, you're going to, when Oprah calls, that's your one out. She did in February. And four days after Leo was born, I found myself in the backyard of Oprah's house talking about happiness. And what a happy week. Cause we just had Leo and I'm here speaking with Oprah and, you know, we spent the whole first, we spent an hour doing the interview and it was all on the happiness advantage, how happiness causes people to be more successful. But as they were taking down the cameras at the end, I said, you know, I really didn't get to talk about something I find so important, which is depression. Um, cause I, you know, it's so easy for people to say, of course, Sean's happy. He's a happiness researcher who's married to a happiness researcher who just had a kid. <laughs> right. And of course, of course, Oprah's happy, right? She's got all these houses and celebrities to know her, and everyone wants to be her friend. She's the top 100 most influential people in history. Um, of course, she's happy. And she said she went through depression at the height of her career when the movie she produced, Beloved, didn't do very well. And I told her I went through two years of depression while I was at Harvard. And she turned back on the cameras, and I thought we were going to do 30 seconds. We did an entire extra hour. And that second hour was even so much deeper because what we talked about is how do you get somebody who's currently not positive into that positive state? How do you get people to believe their behavior matters again? And that's what I care about so much in research. I'm not just a happiness researcher. What I really is, 
What I really am is a, a hope researcher because what we've been finding is incredible amounts of hope within this research because previous, you know, if we were sitting right now, not listening to a podcast, but if we were listening to um, someone's uh, high school science teacher, the majority of them will tell them, will tell the students, you are your genes and your environment. That's all you are, right? So you're whatever you were born with that predisposes you to alcoholism or obesity or athleticism. And you're whatever happened to you as a child, like you're, you're growing up, your parents, and what's happen- whatever's happening to you in the market, so what's happening to you at work. If you think about both of those, we're victims of both. We're victims of our genes, and we're victims to the environment. In neither of those do we actually have behavioral power. There's a third and incredibly powerful third option, um, which is your conscious mindset and behavior patterns. Um, what we found is if you can change your mindset or your behavior, Turns out very small changes can actually trump not only your genes, but eight decades of experience. Why that's so important is what it shows us is, you know, if you get a four-year-old child with potentially genes for pessimism and around the dinner table, have them do what researchers Emmons and McAuliffe had them do is uh, you think of three new things you're grateful for each day and do that for 21 dinners in a row. Turns out you can take a genetic default pessimistic child and turn them into a default optimist which is incredible, low-level optimist. You can do this with 84-year-old men they found at Columbia where they might have genes for pessimism, have practiced it for eight decades of their life. And what they found is doing this very simple pattern of looking at three things they're grateful for that are new each day. Turns out they go from low levels of pessimism to low levels of optimism on, on average. So why this is so important, it means we can change at any point. And it turns out that happiness is not an inheritance. It's actually an intention which is why surrounding yourself with positive people, reading things that are positive, getting somebody to, you know, what I do in my work, the, the thing I want more than anything, that's why we partnered with Oprah to create that course, is we've created this this 21-day course from, you know, it's easy to read my book and then not do any of the habits, right? If we want people for 21 days to actually put these ideas into practice. So we made it so you have a five to 10 minute video each day about the research. And then each day you're adding in this small little habit that takes less than two minutes a day. And then by the end of the 21 days, you've actually created three habits that you've sustained and you've been able to track your levels of happiness using this assessment over time. What happens is you leave the 21 days realizing how important your behavior is that you can change at any point, and then it encourages us to believe that we can actually inspire other people to make change as well. You and I could probably talk forever, but I want to make sure all of our listeners know that um, the O course that uh, Sean is talking about is available at livehappy.com slash 21 days, and it's uh, called 21 Days to a Happier Life and 21 Days to Inspire Happiness Around You. Well, I want to encourage each of our listeners to... uh, Go take the course. Oh, it's an absolute thrill to get to to join you. I love the work that you're doing. I think it's just such having people go through the course is just such a natural extension of what people are doing as they're reading on a daily basis and live happy about all these positive changes that we can make. So my favorite thing that they did with the two the two courses, uh, Oprah courses, was you you can buy it for yourself. You can also buy it as a gift to give it to somebody you know could really use it. And like we're getting so many people that are like, I want to buy this for my 
kid who's in college right now, because I know he's going through a hard time, this could really help him out. Well, Sean, thank you once again for joining us on the program. So glad that you could be with us. And hey, if you want to learn more about Sean's all-new two-part O-Course experience, 21 Days to a Happier Life and 21 Days to Inspire Happiness Around You, as Deborah just mentioned, we've also got a free sketch note of this episode. Check out livehappy.com slash 21 days. And we also hope that you will share with us some things that you took away with today's episode. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at live happy, facebook.com slash live happy. You can find us on Instagram by searching my live happy, or you can send us an email. We love to hear from you. Podcast at live happy.com is where to send those email questions, comments, and concerns. Look forward to reading those very, very soon. For everybody involved in bringing you this one, Sean Acord, Deborah Heiss, I'm J.R. Houston saying so long and remember to always live happy.